Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, I'm recording this intro on my travels in my car as I venture down to the south coast this lovely day in early October. But enough of that, because on to today's episode. I'm delighted because we've got back on the podcast, finally, Luke Pepperer. Luke, he's been on the podcast before, but it's been a while since we chatted to Luke. The last time he came on was to talk all about the Kingdom of Kush almost two years ago. It was about time we got him back on the podcast. He was keen to come back on. He is writing a book at the moment, a massive book, all about the history of Africa. And of course, there's quite a lot of ancient history in that too. So we've recorded a couple of podcasts with Luke on ancient African history. But this one, it's a really interesting one and it's a really important one too. We explore ancient Mediterranean, Greco-Roman and Egyptian attitudes towards race 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And it was a fascinating discussion where the colour of your skin didn't affect how people viewed you, how people treated you. It didn't negatively affect you in any way. It was great to get Luke to talk about this important topic and I do hope you enjoy. So without further ado, to talk all about race in antiquity... Here's Luke. Luke, good to have you back on the podcast, and it's good to be doing it in person this time. Yes, great to be here, Tristan. Thank you for inviting me. It's a long time no see. Back. I mean, last time was the Kingdom of Kush, wasn't it? It was like more than a year, almost two years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was. That was really fun to do, talking about the Kushites and their culture, their politics and their achievements. So, yeah, no, it's really great to be back. But look, this is such an interesting, very important topic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Looking at ancient Mediterranean, ancient European attitudes towards sub-Saharan Africans Mm -hmm. back in antiquity, looking at from ancient Egyptian times to Roman times, it's really interesting how back then there isn't this discrimination which seems to occur later in history. Yes, what's fascinating actually about peoples and especially European peoples and more specifically Mediterranean peoples' attitudes towards Africans is that for them, you know, they don't see Africans as being inherently inferior. There's nothing particularly heinous about being a dark-skinned African or a sub-Saharan African. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, not only are they looking, for example, at individuals' achievements, but there is, you know, in their writings, you don't get a sense that Africans as a group specifically, I mean, obviously, um, ancient writers are known for talking about, let's say, uh, barbarian peoples, i.e. non-Greeks, non-Romans, those people who aren't citizens, etc. You know, there's the history of slavery and all that type of stuff, but ancient Africans aren't targeted specifically. In fact, as a group, they're often lauded in different ways, and it's such a drastic 
or it's so different from what you know happens later, especially in the early modern or modern periods with the advent of what well, the slave trade in the Americas, most particularly, and what's happening in Virginia and with the advent of the plantation economies in, in the Americas and how that leads people to take on you know new ideas or to develop new ideologies concerning Africans. I think that's so interesting a point to make straight away, Luke, in the fact, you know, Greeks and Romans, they view everyone who's not a Greek or a Roman as yeah. a barbarian. So everyone outside Greece and Rome, they view very much the same as barbarians. And it's not like a specific attack on sub-Saharan Africa or the colour of a person's skin back in antiquity. Exactly. Because, I mean, they do actually note, for example, the features, like the physical features of Africans. They talk about blackness, they talk about facial features, etc., they're basically just describing them the same way that we today would describe, for example, a blonde person. You know, those features are just, this is what that person looked like. It doesn't have all these connotations about different things. Relating to your question, what is actually interesting is that obviously with the relationship between these two cultures, the fact that they make contact and actually you have, for example, when the Greeks control part of North Africa and they're coming up against Kush and, you know, the Romans obviously as well, you have Africans, Nubians, Sub-Saharan Africans who are, for example, joining the Greek and Roman armies and, you know, who are becoming citizens in that respect. And they're given all the full rights and respects of being citizens. So as soon as they become Greek and Roman, whether they're born in the city or they achieve something, and because of that, they're rewarded with that status, they're treated just the same as, you know, any other Greek or Roman. And then they themselves are looking at non-Greeks and non-Romans, no matter the colour of their skin, as barbarians. So the skin colour element, the ancestry element, isn't as big a feature in the ancient world as what seems to be the case. And also, as you're highlighting there, with the Greco-Roman world, we're also getting with Carthaginians, with Egyptians, and mm-hmm. all the other places around the ancient Mediterranean. These interactions with people you know, from Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, their regular occurrences from, let's say, the spread of the Greek world, you know, colonies and city-states in North Africa and so on and so forth, these interactions, are they a mixture of trading interactions, military interactions? What do we know about? Yeah, they seem actually to be mainly military. That's like the first and the main way in which the Greeks and the Romans are encountering Africans. I mean, the reason we know that is actually because of the way in which they talk about them and the specific qualities that they lord. For example, the Greeks and Romans often talk about the Kushites in particular, their military capacity and you know their use, for example, of certain weaponry, of certain strategies. Well, actually, the Greeks and Romans themselves, they love hiring Nubian mercenaries and soldiers to fight for them because this is something that they notice and this is one of the main ways in which they come to contact them is through warfare. There is also trade, especially in times of peace. I mean, the Greeks and the Romans especially wanted materials from the African interior. So things like ivory, animal skins, Kush is also big on gold. But because of where it's located, sort of you have Arabia and Persia to the east, and then you have the East African coast, and then you have the interior of Africa. So it's like a trading hub where materials are passing from, you know, lots of different places through Kush and then being shipped towards Egypt and then from there into the Mediterranean. So Kush is also known as being a place from where lots of exotic goods from further afield are being transported. And there is also that demand on the Greco-Roman side. So it is in their favour or it's in their interest as well in times of peace to develop those trading relationships. That military prowess is fascinating. We will come back to it. I'm going on a little tangent bias now because Hannibal yeah, Barker, you know, I find him a fascinating <laughs> figure. But one of his key units was his Numidian cavalry. And actually then the Romans embraced his Numidian cavalry against him later on at Zama when they rejoined the Romans. But it seems a similar case. 
how with the Kingdom of Kush in that area of Africa compared with the Numidians in that area of Africa, they become renowned for their military expertise as one of their key features for these Greco-Roman authors. Yeah, no, exactly. And again, like I said, because of Kush's wealth, there was also the risk of conquest as well. The Greeks, but also especially the Romans after Augustus or Octavian takes power, their initial plan after they take power is to conquer Kush. And that's when they come up against Queen Amani Rhenus and aren't able to defeat her. And then, you know, the peace treaty is signed, etc. So they get a very strong taste of the Kushite military prowess and you know exactly like you say it's noticing that and then wanting to use that military capacity you know in ways that would benefit them and that necessitates then not only making peace but then also sort of inculcating certain Nubians etc into their own culture which again ties into the race angle because there's no sense of well we can't let them in to our culture and use their skills because they're of African ancestry. It's actually, you know, these people are good at this thing. Let's, you know, use them and make them citizens and let's integrate them or some of them into our culture to make ourselves stronger. That's the attitude. Because they bring so much. Because they bring value, yeah. You know, it's not something that's going to be stopped or barred because of their African ancestry. It's not something that they're thinking about in that respect. Opposite to what you get, for example, in early modern America about... For example, if you let, uh, you know, Africans in society, you know, it weakens it and keeping the European stock pure and all that. I mean, none of that stuff applies. They're actually very open about mixing with these people and using their skills to benefit them and being quite an open society. And this is what you see in the ancient world. And something I don't think we realise actually how open the ancient and medieval worlds were and how much contact there was between cultures and the nature of migration etc was different but I mean this is long before for example you have you know the advent of nations like modern nationalism which is some people would argue is a 19th century phenomenon so the sense of you know borders this idea that a certain group of people who look a certain way emerged in a certain place and have lived there for all of time and there's never been any mixing and all that type of stuff doesn't come in until much later. You mentioned the name Kushite quite a few times in yes. Nubia. Yeah. I know it's a key area for you. So where, yes, yeah. whereabouts are we talking with the Kushites? Who are the Kushites? Whereabouts are we talking? With? Yeah, so the Kushites, basically Nubia was what the Egyptians called what is now today sort of South Egypt and mainly Sudan. At one period in time, the Egyptians conquered Nubia and in order to help them administrate it better, they split it into two states. And the southern one was called Kush. But Kush is sort of identified with three kingdoms. Each of these kingdoms was named after their own capital. So Mero, for example, was the last one. And before that, you had Napata. But that's where we're talking is basically modern day Sudan. When you're approaching this topic for your book and looking at antiquity and the attitudes towards sub-Saharan Africans, what sorts of sources were available? What sorts of sources were you looking at to get an idea of the attitudes at that time? What's great is that we have especially preserved is a lot of good ancient Greek writers. So, you know, Herodotus Herodotus is someone who writes actually quite a lot about, you know, Africa and is a bit more measured in how he talks about, for example, dark-skinned Africans. Strabo is another one who is particularly useful, especially when he writes about the period where Armani Rhenus was alive and he talks about that conflict between her and Rome and he talks about, you know, the Kushites as well in a fairly neutral way in terms of their race or ancestry or skin colour. It's not something he derides. So those two were absolutely essential for, you know, looking at this period and also looking at this particular aspect of, you know, history or culture in my book. Before we go on to Protestants, let's talk about New Kingdom Egypt. And you know, this time, more than a millennium BC, what do we know about their interactions 
with, I don't know if you say the Kushites. Or yeah, yeah, the Kushites. With, yeah, with, with the Kushites yeah, at yeah. that time. Seeing Kush wealthy, there was a period of time where the Egyptians wanted to rule them. I mean, about 800 BC, you do have a reversal of that where a Nubian dynasty takes over in Egypt with Tahaka. And that's then a lot of adoption of Egyptian political practice, belief systems, language, you know, hieroglyphics entering Nubia. But it is somewhat of a tense relationship because the Kushites want the natural resources the Nubia have and then or that the Kushites have. And the Kushites are quite sort of wary about anybody encroaching upon them, which is, I think, partly why they develop such a militaristic attitude and become so well-developed militarily. That's how I describe the relationship between the two states. And I'm presuming as well, if they're so wealthy, they have these resources that are so highly sought after that. Can you imagine... Kushite traders and merchantmen oh, going of to course. the Mediterranean, up the River Nile, then across the Mediterranean and so on and so forth. Yes, of course. I mean, definitely going to Egypt. I mean, the trade networks are really well developed by this point. You know, I mean, there are definitely caravans coming from the interior into Kush and then probably going to Egypt as well. And then afterwards being taken via seaways into the Mediterranean, which obviously saved Kushites having to... Or people in general having to make that treacherous journey in person. And there are people who are experienced traders who have experience also with people from the interior who are able to organise these expeditions and these caravans and to move in a quite a high volume of precious goods across nations even at this earlier time. All right then, let's talk to Rodasus. Talk me through what he says therefore about sub-Saharan Africans and the general idea we get from him. Yeah, well, I mean, he's talking about people, individuals particularly, who he admires, some of whom happen to be African, like sub-Saharan African. And it's just in the way that he's talking about them, you get no sense of him being prejudiced towards them because they are African. And that seems to be the nature, actually, not just of his writings, but, you know, a lot of people who are writing about African sub-Saharan Africans, mainly Kushites, because obviously these are the ones with whom they're coming into contact at that time, or even from things that they've heard from other people traveling about the way that Kushites do things. I mean, sometimes you get the sense from when you're thinking or talking about, for example, what's happening in, you know, in America is that no matter the status of achievements of the person, they're always going to be perceived as a certain way, i.e. lower or inferior because of their skin color. And the key thing to remember is that that's not what happens in the ancient world. There's nothing about being African, dark-skinned African that holds you back in that sense. It is this person is royal, this person achieved this and that. Therefore, they deserve to be praised, as opposed to this person achieved this or that, despite, you know, being from Kushal, from being, you know, quote unquote black, or that this person is a fluke. That kind of narrative is not something that, you know, you see in the writings of Herodotus and also some other ancient Mediterraneans as well. Well, I mean, let's focus on those. Some of these highly praised individuals. We've talked about Manuranus in the past. Yes, this yeah. Like certainly one of those figures who is highly praised in the sources we have surviving. Who is she and how does she fit into the story? Amaya Reyes became the Queen of Kush soon after Augustus becomes Emperor of Rome after the suicides of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And it's at a point in time where the Romans are trying to push a bit further into Africa. I mean, she's written about by Strabo, who I mentioned earlier. I mean, she takes over fighting against the Romans as they're kind of advancing and she puts up such an effective resistance that the Romans essentially give up 
And in the 20 BCs, her representatives go to the island of Samos where Augustus is and then end up signing a peace treaty which basically gives all the, the Kushites all the concessions that they wanted because the Romans have been trying to impose taxes and had conquered parts of northern Kush and you know had been sort of creating havoc in that respect for the Kushites. And the Kushites, led by Amani Renus, are resisting against this and then they end up achieving the things that they wanted in this peace settlement. But what's interesting is that in Strabo's account of her achievements, he talks about her military prowess. He compares her to an Amazon. You know, he describes her as this one-eyed warrior queen. He describes her as being manly, but I wonder if that could just be a prejudice because she's doing things not expected of Greek women. Whereas in Africa, she was just one of many warrior queens, or in Kush anyway, beginning around 200 BC. You have women or queens who become the supreme authority in Kush, even though the rulership of Kush had always been matrilineal, where it was, you know, the king's sister's sons, one of whom was elected to be the next king. And then his mother became the queen mother, and she was actually the most important person in the kingdom. But what's interesting is that Strabo, when he's talking about her, if I remember, he doesn't actually mention, for example, her skin colour. You know, when he's describing her, he talks about her as, like I said, a one-eyed warrior queen of the Amazon type. That's the way in which he speaks of her. But he gives no, or at least very little, lip service to the colour of skin, to African ancestry, apart from to say that she was the queen of the Kushites and was doing this or that in order to resist the Roman advance. It's absolutely fascinating. And you get those stories. I'm guessing there are probably more stories as well of other individuals. That are... Yeah, so I mean, there are sometimes short accounts. Sometimes guru writers will talk about the virtues they think are important for kingship. When they're picking examples, you know, some of them pick Kushite rulers. Focusing on individuals' achievements seems to be much more their game there rather than stereotyping, generalising based on a physical feature, a distinctive group physical feature. And when you look at that and compare it to especially what's happened later, I mean, it's fascinating, but also it's quite a refreshing perspective. You know, it reminds you that what we take for granted as being such an important and distinctive feature of the modern world, skin color based racism, you know, it's not something that has always existed. It's actually something that has sort of been cultivated, yes, not, or fabricated, not necessarily just materially, but, you know, in the minds of certain people because of certain circumstances. Those circumstances, for example, in the Americas being where the enslaved population became majority African. And then in order to control that population, the Virginians were imposing laws that targeted Africanness because they happened to make up the entirety of their enslaved population. That is when it all changes. That's more than a millennium. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think the legacy of the ancient world in terms of how Africans are treated feeds into a lot more into the medieval world where even actually there you have the beginnings of a trade and enslaved Africans. At least in Europe, it's one, not exclusively Africans who are traded to be slaves. I mean, you get people, for example, in Laguetia or Portugal, I mean, you have people coming from the Balkan states, people coming from Greece, you have people coming from Turkey. So... The populations there are mixed, but they're mixed all the way throughout. Alessandro de' Medici, who had African ancestry, you know, becomes the first Duke of Florence. But the point is that the attitudes to racist skin color, there it is about the individual, their achievements, his lineage, you know, the African blackness does not work against him because he's still promoted to become Duke of Florence because the key thing is that he's Italian, he's also a Medici. And that's more the attitude that exists in the ancient world. It's that you're looking at an individual, you're not stereotyping, you're not generalizing based on Africanness. But more importantly, there is nothing specifically about being African that makes you inferior. Africans aren't seen as an inherently inferior group of people.
Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Ancients listeners, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my fellow History Hit podcast host, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from the hit TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. Now, on Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find the objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. What I love about this podcast is that it's a deep dive into specific objects, revealing the amazing stories they can tell about a person, about a place, or a time in history. It's the detail and laser focus that really resonates with me. Listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
the Romans when they're overtaking the Carthaginians there, they yeah. install a number of client kings. Yes, Jews yes, exactly. Them, yeah, Masinissa as well, I believe. Yeah, and once again, it's nothing to do with skin color. It's the individual that is the best person to rule to over rule, that exactly. part of the empire as a client king. And it's so fascinating, Luke, when you look at that. Let's say Hellenistic ancient Mediterranean and Near East world, post Alexander the Great, where you therefore get you know people coming from India and mm -hmm. you know announce being in the Athenian agora or with the kingdom of Kush down the river Nile, very much connected with the Mediterranean, perhaps having traders all the way up in Hadrian's Wall or, or wherever. This was a place where people could travel, you know, for one reason or another. And you would get these people with different skin colours going to these various places in the ancient Mediterranean and beyond and being able to do stuff, to trade or, or whatever. Exactly. I mean, it's what makes a person Greek? What makes a person, you know, Roman? What makes a person Portuguese? Nowadays, skin colour is a part of that. You know, we identify people from a certain national background as also having a certain skin colour. It's known that a Ghanaian would necessarily be dark skinned, whereas um, an English or a French person would necessarily be light skinned. But actually, I think those definitions um, related to what you said are a lot more flexible in the past. You could travel, you could go to a certain place if you immersed yourself in that culture, started speaking the language, wear the clothing, etc. Then you weren't disqualified from becoming a member of that culture because of the color of your skin. Some people might use that as a descriptor, but like I said, it would be the same thing as being called blonde. And actually that's the attitude you get from people in the ancient world. They might talk about, for example, a black Greek, but when they're talking about that, they're not saying black in order to be exclusive. They're not saying because they're a black Greek, that doesn't mean they're not fully Greek. They're just describing exactly what the person looks like very physically. It doesn't have the same kind of connotations. It doesn't have that weight that we give it to nowadays. Now when we describe, for example, someone as being black, there's a whole tale that comes with it. Talking about, you know, the globalist history of the, you know, of the slave trade and colonialism and, you know, all the rest that sort of comes along with it. But like you said, you know, you could go to certain places, immerse yourself, you know, people were a lot more open to accepting who became a member of their society, who was treated as a member of their society. I mean, again, this is slightly later on or a lot later on, but I think it's important to mention in the context of, you know, the ancient world, because it reflects the attitude that existed from the ancient world up until the modern world. Because it's really in the 19th century that our modern attitudes of race about Africans being inherently inferior, about people of different skin colours, you know, existing in different realms and having done so for ages, codifies into an ideology with a scientific basis. But what I wanted to mention was that in, you know, in Russia in the 18th century, you have Ganabal Petrovich. He's like an African adopted son of, or he's given to Peter the Great as a gift. I think it comes from somewhere in sort of central, west central Africa. Peter the Great frees him and then adopts him as a son. And then he enters like the Russian military. So this is around in the 18th century. And he becomes a minor aristocrat. And I think his great grandson is, you know, Alexander Pushkin, who's like, you know, the Shakespeare of Russia. But the point is that, you know, he was in that society. He entered a profession there. He entered a specific class there. He married a Russian woman. He had children who remained aristocrats you know he was the adopted son of peter the great where in that is this person for example has to remain a slave for life because they're african i mean you see the same thing again in britain around the same time where you have people like francis barber and you know equiana who it is important to mention it's true start off um you know as enslaved africans but even america around that time which is these people aren't allowed to advance 
beyond a certain point and can't be fully included because of their heritage and particularly because they're African. And that's a similar attitude when you look at the writings of the ancients is what exists in antiquity. I want to place your strengths absolutely here, Lou, because as you've mentioned before, you said you're a generalist. We are writing this huge book on the history of Africa. Yeah. So it must be so interesting having that you know, wide amount of knowledge from, as you mentioned, like 19th century all the way back to, let's say, Kushite interaction yeah, with exactly, the Romans, yeah, yeah. to look at how attitudes develop over those centuries of history, looking for similarities, looking for differences, and analysing and bringing those differences and highlighting it, writing it on paper. Yes, I see myself as a generalist. I'm working on this book, Motherland, which covers a period of 500,000 years of African history, which is you know coming out in a couple of years. But my background is in anthropology. So what's always fascinated me is using history, more importantly, to tell the stories of individuals. I think that's the great thing about humanities is that you can use qualitative evidence, you know, and everything doesn't need to be statistics, is actually you can look at just the lives of individuals. I mentioned, you know, Armani Renes, I mentioned Alessandro de Medici or Ganibal Petrovic, and be like, actually, this reflects something very interesting about the way these people were treated in society. Actually, you can extrapolate from that to get a general sense of how people's attitudes were at that time. But comparing attitudes, when you look at it, when you take a millennia or a couple of millennia long view, not only can you see, for example, the similarities between what's happening in the medieval and you know, early modern and slightly later worlds, and then what's happening in the ancient world. And then you know that those attitudes of the ancient world are being carried through, which is why it's valid, I think, to look at what's happening slightly later, for example, the medieval world, Alessandro de Medici, and use that in an example to say that actually, not as is similar, but we can see how these attitudes have been maintained in Europe. But you can see it slightly changing as well when the trade in you know, enslaved Africans is kind of ramping up. But more importantly, you can see actually how quickly things turn in particular countries to negatively affect and negatively impact enslaved Africans. How, for instance, you know, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, because the abolitionist movement, for example, in Britain is gaining ground and the West Indian planters see their properties and their profits under threat, how some of them spread anti-African propaganda in order to protect those and then how some of them provide a scientific basis for that propaganda and then how that influences later scientists who then take it one step further and then how that academic ideology then is adopted by people in politics or involved in statecraft who are then also involved in colonial projects and then how they employ that. So you can sort of see it develop but it really begins I would say when it becomes a developed ideology is really in the 19th centuries. Because again, even the 18th century, there are people who are sharing those ideas, but it's really not mainstream is the interesting thing. And then you can compare that actually to what's happening in the ancient world. And then you can look at the factors or features that led to that being developed. And then you say to yourself, oh, okay, it's, you know, obviously there are dynamics, for example, like the trade in slave peoples, but sometimes it's not just that. Like I mentioned in America, it's not the fact that Africans are being enslaved and traded. It's the fact that the enslaved population in America is majority African. That's the key. If it remained mixed, I don't think an ideology which specifically targets Africans and labels Africans as being inherently inferior would have developed if, for example, when sort of the plantation economies was becoming an important feature of early American society. Initially, in order to work those, so for example, tobacco is very labour intensive and then obviously in the Caribbean as well, sugar is very labour intensive. You know, initially the plan is to use Native Americans, but they're dying in droves. You can't use white indentured servants. 
because they sign contracts where after a while they're freed. Native Americans, like I said, are dying mainly because they're not resistant to old world diseases, but Africans are because, you know, they come from the old world. So then they become the workforce that ends up taking over or that ends up becoming, you know, the majority in the American societies. And then in order to control them, you have laws that are put in place in order to control a majority, quote unquote, black African workforce. And then these are necessarily targeting skin color and it. It kind of just develops like that. But what's important to remember, and I think, you know, it's great to speak today, for example, is to share the knowledge that actually that's a relatively recent development and it's something that happens in one part of the world and it has spread, but it wasn't always like that. One other thing I'd love to highlight, we'll talk a bit about the Romans, but Septimius Severus. Oh, yeah, like of course. Must talk about. Yeah, no, that's, that is a very good point. I mean, you know, it's interesting, actually, because... We make, I think today, a much bigger deal of the fact that he's African than the Romans would have. You know, when we talk about him today, the documentaries done about him, and it's like, oh my goodness, there was an African emperor. Imagine if he speaks to Rome, they'd be like, so yeah. It's good to show that actually, you know, there were no ethnic skin color barriers to reaching that kind of level. If you did, you did. But the fact that the ancestries of Roman emperors or Roman elites was different because, you know, skin color wasn't a huge feature of their society. It was citizen versus barbarian was the big divide. If you're a Roman citizen, you're treated a certain way. You know, you had certain privileges. Otherwise, the outsiders or those who were the other were, you know, the non-Romans, the non-civilized Romans, the barbarians. Other than that, you know, whether it was, you know, skin, color, ancestry, etc., not something that was paid attention to or given lip service to. It's so interesting. And also, I think Septimius Severus's biggest rival, Clodius Albinus, also came from Africa. So oh, well, the young in, yeah, exactly. I think I remember from our last chat, a long time ago now. Yes. So you mentioned that the sons of wealthy Kushite families yes, yeah. also went to Rome. Exactly, they yeah. They were taught in Rome and yeah, yeah. a Roman citizen, as you say, it's not to do with skin color. It was... If you're a Roman. Then if you're a Roman, Roman, yeah, exactly. So elite Kushites sent their children to be educated in those states. You also mentioned earlier the client kingdoms when Romans would install, for example, people from the culture that they'd conquered to rule that place. It's a similar thing that they did with the Kushites as well, which was part of the reason why then the Kushites who they installed as client kings, for example, after they'd conquered a part of northern Kush, then sent their children, you know, to learn some of the language and customs and then also join the military as well, the Roman military, in order to learn, you know, different techniques which would then also be useful when they became back and became officers and you And know. highly valued auxiliary troops, I'm guessing from non-Roman exactly. who then serve in the Roman Exactly, exactly. Armies. So I mean you have all this interconnection, this mixing. I mean there was prejudice, but the fact that it wasn't, you know, skin colour prejudice or racial prejudice. And when I say race, I mean, you know, ancestry, the fact that this person has ancestors of dark-skinned Africans is not something that barred people from enjoying certain rights and privileges. That's something that changes later on in the human story. It's been absolutely fascinating. You've got the Kushite pharaohs, you've got Septimius Severus, Cody Salvinus and so many others as well, don't you, Luke? I mean, this has been great. Is there anything in regards to this topic you'd also like to mention to highlight before we completely wrap up this episode? For anybody who's interested in, you know, looking more into this topic, I highly recommend Frank Snowden's Before Colour Prejudice. You know, it's not a narrative that we're sort of taught and, you know, with which we're familiar, especially in Britain, you know, where we are now, where there is a lot of tension. And what I would like to impart on, on the ancient listeners is to remember that the ideas that we have now, the ideologies and perceptions we have now, a lot of them come about a lot later than, you know, we think they do. Just because we have them now doesn't mean we've always had them. And, you know, it's important to realise that a lot of these things, for example, are arbitrary, you know, and they change and that peoples of the ancient and medieval worlds 
might have actually had in a lot of ways more progressive views in certain aspects that we do. So I think it's important to remember, although we've made great strides, for example, with something like skin colour prejudice, and this is important to remember that societies can regress in terms of certain attitudes and in terms of certain behaviours, you know, history isn't always a straight line of continuous progress. It's important to look also back at what forebears thought and incorporate some of those ideas and ideologies which are a lot more open-minded and a lot more progressive even compared to today into our current ideologies. Well, buddy, this has been great. My mind is still going like Queen of Sheba or Alexander Romance. <laughs> Alexander Romance is good. Yeah, exactly. Alexander Romance is great, isn't it? That's yeah, another really interesting That's another one, one exactly. Because he goes to Kush again. Was it Meroe in that in the legendary story? And Yeah, I mean, also something that's also mentioned, for example, in the manuscripts of Mali, the romance, and I think if I remember correctly, even tries to write their own version. So there is all this interaction. There's no protectionism when it comes to cultures and race. You know, it's all sort of refreshingly open, which is not the idea we always have of in our ancestors, so and especially the ancient world as well. So I think that's key to remember. Brilliant. Well, Luke, let's wrap it up there. This has been a great chat. Great to have you back on the pod. And thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to come back on the pod. Thank you so much, Tristan. It was a pleasure. Well, there you go. There was Luke Pepperer talking about race in antiquity. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Just one thing for me today as I got to dash and keep going down to the South Coast. If you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely racing on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get to your podcast from, we, the whole team, we greatly appreciate it as we continue our mission to share these incredible stories from our distant past with you. We also have a special code on at History Hit for you Ancients listeners today. You can get a significant discount for your first three months, 50% off your first three months, if I remember correctly, if you use code ANCIENTS when you sign up to History Hit today. So check that one out too. You get access to our library of podcasts, not just the Ancients, all the other podcasts, and all of our documentary material. We release two new documentaries each week. We're getting bigger, we're getting better, we're getting stronger all the time. So do check out History Hit. Use code ANCIENTS to have a peruse when and if you feel like it. But that's enough from me, and I'll see you in the next episode. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. 
As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.